Welcome to Hooked on Bond, where three long-time fans discuss the James Bond films. Welcome to episode 12. This time we are talking about For Your Eyes Only from 1981 with Roger Moore as James Bond. This is Brian. This is Gary. And this is Edmund. So this one deals with a communications device known as the ATAC. And we find out very early in the story that there is a British spy ship that looks like a fishing vessel on the outside and has this sort of naval installation buried uh, inside it. And there is this high-tech device that um, we see is being dealt with uh, uh, very carefully and monitored constantly. And of course, the ship is is uh, is sunk. It's destroyed and we don't know exactly what happened to this device but we shortly find out that it is a key device used by the British Navy for targeting and apparently if someone else gets hold of it they could take control of basically all of the armaments in the British Navy or something along those lines. Yeah well so specifically the, the Polaris submarines and their nuclear missiles. Yes that was it and uh Bond is sent to find out what's going on, locate uh, what's left of the ship, and make sure that either they get the ATAC back or they see that it's destroyed so it can't be used by anyone else. And uh, we see that there was a, a Greek couple that was uh, secretly looking for, uh, for this for the British and they are shot down uh, by a helicopter. Uh, this is witnessed by their daughter Melina, who of course becomes involved with things as Bond is searching to find out what is uh, what is happening and to locate and get a hold of the ATAC. Yeah, no, that's it in in pretty much in a nutshell. Um, I just mentioned that it's not a, it's actually a seaplane that uh, shoots them down, but I think you're just getting confused by the uh, the pre credit sequence. Uh, Yes, that's probably right. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, this is the, well, I consider a sort of in, infamous sequence where uh, Blofeld takes take remote control of the helicopter Bond is in and uh, basically has so much fun flying it around that he, of course, gives Bond plenty of time to uh, commandeer it and uh, summarily dismiss the Blofeld, even though they never say it's Blofeld, but uh, given the fact he has a white cat and he's bald is... Uh, and uh, d dismisses him from the series rather um, yes, the opening... unceremoniously. Yes. yes. <laughs> the opening sequence was uh, was quite a strange one. It was, um, it had, uh, I don't know how many different references to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, mm -hmm. which was about a dozen years earlier at this point and several movies back. Yeah. But, you know, we start out seeing Bond at the Grey side of Tracy uh, his uh, who was briefly his wife and uh, the uh, written on the, the tombstone is the words we have all the time in the world mm -hmm. which was one of the songs from Honor Majesty's Secret Service yeah uh, you had Blofeld with or presumably Blofeld with the neck brace which we saw at the end of 
on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Although I would say that he's more in a wheelchair because of what was done to him at the end of Diamonds Are Forever, at least, that that's what we're supposed to think, I think. Yes, maybe, but he did sort of have the look of the Telly Savalas Blofeld with the bald head <laughs> that's and certainly the neck true. brace. That's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a combination that you had in that memorable ending scene in, uh, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So I read that as, uh, as a tribute there, but they definitely did not say that it was Blofeld. Blofeld was not mentioned. Spectre was not mentioned. Right, and the but reason for this... you had the cat. I like the fact that you didn't see his face. Right, well, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the that's because Blofeld was always hidden in the first few movies. So they were sort of paying tribute to that. But at the end of the day, um, Broccoli did not have the rights to Blofeld at this point. It was, right. it was definitively decided that Kevin McClory had the rights to Blofeld. So Broccoli could never use Spectre or Blofeld again. And mm-hmm. he decided, let's get rid of him in the most obnoxious way possible. And yes. the, the sequence starts well. It's creepy in the, in the, um, the graveside. The priest sort of gives Bond the sort of a... Uh, a creepy look as he flies away in the helicopter. Oh, he's practically giving him last rites. Yeah, pretty much giving him last rites. And uh, then then it's working well for a little while, although Blofeld, or not Blofeld, whatever, starts taunting him in a really cheesy way. And then once Bond turns the table, it's uh, it becomes silly. And the whole sequence is completely destroyed by uh, Blofeld's last line, where he says, we'll do a deal. I'll give you a delicatessen made of steak stainless steel <laughs> he really does say that that's in the script wow. why why bond would want a delicatessen of stainless steel is beyond me but that's in the script and it's a set on screen and for me that completely ruins the scene <laughs> as bad as like the slide whistle ruins the jump or you know it just really really wrecks it and and you can only think of that it was meant to be as insulting to blofeld as possible yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, but uh, actually, the thing I, f- I did find intriguing this time was actually watching the movie and getting all of those Honor Majesty Secret Service references. Because when I first saw it, I mean, it was after you know, yeah, sort of you know, the the more films being my introduction to seeing Bond in the theaters. And at this point, I mean, I I think I'd gone back and seen a bunch of the Conneries, but uh, but. Uh, Secret Service was not one of them. So, you know, all of that just, you know, completely went over my head when I first saw it. And it was it was kind of neat to, you know, I mean, both that, that opening sequence and then, you know, I think that was, a, you know, a, a deliberate little signal that, uh, you know, they were going back to, uh, you know, a, a less over-the-top style with this one. And, uh, you know, kind, kind, kind of back to basics and back to... Some some of the um, added you know sort of attitude and uh, elements from those early movies. Yes, there was a definite effort to move back to a little bit more classic Bond and a little bit less over the top, especially coming after Moonraker. Space. Laser bottles. Well, it may, I think at the time what Cubby Broccoli was saying producing this was that he did not want to get into the game of trying to uh, have to top each one. And, you know, what What do you do to go a step beyond Moonraker? Well, it starts to become, uh, uh, you know, a little silly at that point. 
So I think, um, uh, you know, there were definitely lots of efforts to move back towards um, a lot of, um, you know, the slightly earlier elements there. So we should mention some of the characters here. Uh, we had an interesting array of uh, of Bond girls in here. Uh, Carol uh, Carol Bouquet play, played Melina uh, as sort of the central one and um, was sort of our, I guess, our strong woman character. The the vengeance seeking Greek woman of myth. And and definitely and and let's just say possibly the most gorgeous Bond girl or one of them and definitely the most gorgeous Bond girl still if you see her now she still looks amazing yeah she's one of the few that that it's like been over thirty years since that movie and she looks fantastic. I think she stood up as a pretty good character uh, in it, and it was sort of, um, I think it was at a time when they were sort of dabbling with stronger women, and you know, trying to get trying to get this to work. Uh, I know the image of a woman using a crossbow is something that we've seen in film and television quite a few times now, and I'm wondering if this was one of the earlier ones in sort of mainstream film. Maybe, I mean. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I can't think of too many prior to this. Yeah, it was definitely a distinctive image and a character who really sort of stood up. You know, visually, you had the the very long, silky hair and the, you know, crossbow wielding and so on. And you had this idea of her, you know, standing up to do her own thing most of the time during the film. Mm-hmm. And having this revenge aspect but also sort of understanding that yes there are there are other issues and uh you know she's willing to go along with what bond has to do that you know yes there are sort of major issues involving the politics of the thing yeah and certainly and yeah and certainly by me you know about bond you know immediately bringing up the uh you know the the chinese proverb if you're you know if if you're going to seek vengeance you know dig dig the two graves for the for them and yourself so you know you know after after she's after she's evoked to lectra you know they're definitely having a a, you know a, a slightly more philosophical discussion than we're used to used to hearing in the in the bond movies yes i like that i think that was reasonably well done uh now if she was the 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 stronger woman in this, Lynn Holly Johnson's BB doll was not. Yes, was more, definitely more the comic relief. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was cast for a particular reason. They had some snow sequences, and they thought someone with with that ability. She'd been in the what was the movie? Um, she'd been in a skating film before. I forget the name of it, but. She'd been a, a reasonably well-known American actor as a result of that movie, and I think they thought her casting would be good. It would be something that might help fuel the movie. Her character obviously is it comes off as a joke at the end, uh, throughout the film, and, and really more annoying than anything else. But I will say that she, the script allows her to sort of pull it together at the end. She actually sort of rises to help Bond at the end. She does only one thing to help him, but but it's pretty important. And I like I like the I like the fact that the movie sort of redeemed her in that way. Yes, her sort of redemption at the end was, I guess, sort of the payoff for that character. Sort of her growing up. Yeah, her growing up a little, because clearly she was immature, and, and she needed something to sort of wake her up to that. Yeah, the the actress was indeed uh, a competitive skater. You know, the, the whole figure skating thing was definitely a big part of it. But yes, she was played as being very immature, and uh, Roger Moore had concerns about uh, even 
even, you know, at his age at that point, being, uh, you know, played across from this uh, actress who was not yet 20 at that point. And it, it did feel a little bit, a little bit of a stretch there, having the, the two of them playing across each other. But well, they were playing, but they were playing the roles like a, she was too young, even for Bond. And he just didn't want anyone that childish. Or... Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it, it, it doesn't really work. And it is a little bit annoying, but I, I actually don't mind it as much as I thought I remembered minding it. Yeah, it, I think it works on one level, but on in some other ways, it doesn't work as well. That's true. The third woman would be Countess Liesel. Yes, yeah. Cassandra like Harris. Cassandra Harris, who, who of course is also known as well, known was known for uh, later. She was she was Pierce Brosnan's wife when they were filming this, and this is how Brosnan sort of first intersected with the uh, the Bond producers, and and they sort of got the got it in their mind that they might eventually cast him. Um, and she she was quite good. She was always very good at playing sort of the you were unsure where she was. Was she a femme fatale? Was she a good good girl? Could she be trusted and the character here is is uh, is quite nice she doesn't get that much screen time but she sort of comes alive in that short amount of time that's right you never know where her allegiances lie and that was nice um you know there are sort of several uh points where you think you know oh well she's actually uh you know really working on behalf of this person well no maybe she's doing something uh for this person or maybe something else on her own and that sort of bouncing around was uh was nice that's thought that worked that worked although what's well. interesting is since she really was very likely Columbo's girlfriend <laughs> or it's, it's not entirely clear they were very close they he sort of sent her to sleep with Bond um, and she did and so it's like her, her role is a little bit unclear even there yes like she was sleeping with him just like he was sleeping with her for information it was a very uh, there was no romance in that one although it, it seemed like at the end that she she and he had a connection she turned out to be British and sort of faking it a bit of a con artist herself I think they sort of had more in common at that point yeah mm -hmm. there do seem to be quite a few sort of cold and self-interested relationships of different sorts between different different characters in this film. Uh, we also need to talk about the the two sort of villains, exactly, exactly how you consider them is, um, uh, you know, I guess depends where you are in the film or how you look at it. Uh, Topol played Milos Colombo, and then you had Julian Glover as Christatos. As a child watching this movie for the first time, I guess I was 12 or 13, I, I bought into the Christatos story. It seemed like a reasonable explanation and um, Glover seems like a likable person, very friendly. So I think mm -hmm. I bought into that at the time, that, oh, this is when it turns out, oh, he was the villain all along, because Christados does turn out to be the villain, and that was well done. Now, knowing who Julian Glover is, knowing he was <laughs> knowing he was a villain in the Indiana Jones series, he was even a villain, he was even a, a commander in Empire Strikes Back working That's correct. for the Empire. Yes, I mean, he's pretty much always a villain. If he's in your film, he's He's the bad guy. <laughs> It, yes. it almost stands to reason he's the bad guy. So, and while Topol, of course, is Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof and is almost always the good guy. That's he's right. Dr. Zarkov. I don't know when he's been the, <laughs> I don't know if he's ever been the bad guy. He just can't be unlikable or unlovable. Yes. So now it's it's so obvious, but as a child, I bought into it. So I think it was well played by the actors. It, it also it represents a rare, like, surprise villain for the Bond series. Yes, absolutely. Where it's like you're not supposed to know who the bad guy is. And usually it's pretty 
obvious in every Bond movie who the villain is. So I'll give him credit for, for pulling that off nicely. And and of course, it should also be said, this is the plot of Rizdiko, uh, the short story written by Ian Fleming in uh, Free Rise Only, the anthology of short stories, where Bond meets the two smugglers and it's unclear who the villain is until the end when it's revealed that it's, it's Christados is the one he can't trust. The two smugglers, uh, Colombo and Cristados, are clearly uh, enemies of each other. But exactly where Bond is going to lie, and where you know where we end up, and you know who's actually doing what, is sort of what is sort of in flux, and we gradually gradually learn about. Julian Glover has had this amazing career over the years, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Gary, with both um, Indiana Jones and Star Wars, and being in a Bond film. He was also in Doctor Who a couple of times in the 60s and then in the 70s uh, not long before For Your Eyes Only. Uh, Going to more recent things you can see him now in Game of Thrones. That's right. Grandmaster Pycelle or something. That's right. Uh, He's Pycelle there and going uh, backwards to his early career, there was a thing the BBC did in 19 1960 that was called An Age of Kings and it was uh, like a collection of the of some of the Shakespearean histories mm-hmm. uh, done in sort of edited form to make like one sort of long um, like a series of one hour episodes. Let me guess, he, he gets to be that. Richard III? <laughs> I Richard, don't know which, I don't know which roles he played in that. It was uh, it was done like a rep company so each actor play usually played multiple roles. Right. But he was in that back in 1960, and he's still in, um, you know, fantasy television and these kinds of things now. So he's had this amazing career doing all sorts of things in film and television. And not all, uh, not all of them have been villains, but certainly I think most of them have. Yeah. Uh, no. He was he was also apparently considered for uh, for James Bond at one point. Really. Uh, <laughs> according. According to uh, Dana Broccoli, mm. he was first considered uh, quite early on, and they decided he was too young. And by the time they were considering him again, he was too old. Mm-hmm. But that was considered at one point, at a couple of points, apparently. But uh, yeah, we had some interesting actors and interesting characters um, showing up in there. Uh, I guess maybe this is the point to mention... The character uh, and the actor who is not in this film. Yes. Um, oh, this is, yes. I think, the only Bond film that does not have M in it. Is that right? That, that's that is right. correct. Yeah. And they they structure the story so it works reasonably well. You have Jeffrey Keane's Minister of Defense is back, and he is sort of partly filling in that uh, M-type role, and there was a chief of staff there as well. Uh, Bernard Lee, who had played M in 11, the first 11 Bond films, uh, had died uh, between the time when Moonraker was completed and when this went into production. So they they, uh, they didn't immediately recast, so they had uh, they didn't have M in uh, in this particular film, and we do miss him, of course, because uh, Bernard Lee did uh, such a wonderful job there, and he was, um, I guess, only 
behind uh, Desmond Lowell on this cue in terms of uh, reprising the same role in a large number of Bond films. Oh, I, well, Miss Moneypenny, actually, Lois Maxwell. Oh, that's right, of course, Lois Maxwell. In fact, Lois Maxwell well. had the, she had the, the record, actually. Oh, did she? Okay. Well, she appeared in the first 15, okay. I believe, without having, without missing one. Yeah. So she would, she would have been the one with the most appearances at that point. That's right. Okay. In fact, she probably had, and then eventually Desmond Llewellyn did pass her. Yes, you're quite right, of course. Because Desmond Llewellyn certainly he had like what five more. So yes. after that, after that point, you're he quite, wins. You're he quite wins. right. Yes. <laughs> But but Bernard Lee still did have a, a very good impressive run there. Yes, he did. Absolutely. I, I also just wanted to mention one other like of the villains. There were some minor villains as well scattered through this movie. They don't really get a lot of dialogue, and they're not that interesting, like Loke and Kriegler, or I think Gonzalez. But uh, I just want to point out that Charles Dance, also the main villain from Game of Thrones, and and a great villainous actor that's been in many things, is in this movie. He's um, he's Lux henchman when they're going up on the ski run. Uh, he tries to sort of, you can clearly see that in the elevator and just before that, and he, he's the one who tries to bump Bond off the ski jump. Yes, right, of course. And he may even appear again a little later, but it's it's so minor. He has no dialogue, really. Uh, yeah. But it's it's totally Charles Dance, and I think it's kind of funny that this is obviously one of his earlier roles because, you know, if you have Charles Dance in your film, you probably should give him some lines. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, yes, he is a, a striking-looking man, but, uh, yeah, it's good, it's good to actually give him some dialogue. But, uh, but yeah, actually, I, I just realized I've, I hadn't quite put that together. I mean, you see, you see him going down the stairs and then... The guy coming out to uh, to try and bump Bond on the ski jump. That uh, that of course that was him. Yep. We also had Walter Gotel back as General Gogol. Yep. Mm. In a slightly more antagonistic uh, role. Yeah, he was sort of back to being a villain again. Yeah. When he, in the first one that he was in, he you know at the beginning of the film it sort of seems like he might be the the villain, and then ultimately he isn't. But uh, yeah, he was sort of back to being uh, to being the villain, but he was um very he wasn't he wasn't uh, a master villain he wasn't um the uh, uh you know someone that inspired terror he was more the uh, the opponent in the game they were playing yeah i think that's right yeah it reminded yeah. me of the wolf and sheep dog once the uh from the from the classic warner brothers cartoon like once the once the device is destroyed at the end of the movie it's like, yeah, that's nice. Have a nice day. <laughs> no revenge. It's like, okay, that's that. Yeah, okay, we let's, let's move on. See you next tried. time. Maybe we'll be working people, together. I had a lot of people kill, sort of, and, and not quite at my order, but because of what I did. Like, Melina, the parents do get killed because he insists on finding this. Uh, so a lot of people do die as a result of the Russians' need for this um, device, but he sort of, he walks away at the end. It's good, and they don't actually. Uh, they don't actually. Even though Gogol has spoken English perfectly and has had number of conversations with Bond and other people, they don't actually speak at the end. Mm -hmm. Just sort of, as it, he almost acts as if he doesn't speak English at the end. Uh, it's almost like it's a different character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sort of like, or it, so I mean, also, I mean, you know, right. the, the way he doesn't really even acknowledge Bond. I mean, you know, yeah. when you know, we 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 they clear they clearly met in you know Spy Who Loved Me, and uh, but uh, you know, but. Uh, I mean, I mean, at least Detente does get mentioned at the end, but yep. <laughs> but yeah, we're definitely.
Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know, but we, yeah, we're we're definitely back to uh, you know a, a a more antagonistic relationship than uh, than they had in the, the the previous couple of films. Yeah, it almost felt like he knew that in this particular situation, uh, he was not going to be talking to them. There had to be, you know, no no communication, no acknowledgement. It was just, you know, the the little laugh and waving his hand. You know, he knew that was all he was uh, he was willing to do there yeah yeah it felt very deliberate and restrained, which was nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess the, I mean, the the part that just feels odd about that is that he's acting almost as you know, as though it's like you know, oh, this is just the guy who's here to deliver the ATAC to me. When it's like, you know, no, obviously he knows who Bond. You know, he should know Bond from the previous interaction. So you know, the fact that he's almost expecting it to be handed over is you know, <laughs> it does, you know that, that, that doesn't quite ring true. Yes, <laughs> you know, he basically should kind of know know the jig is up the moment he uh, you know he sees who has it, but. Uh, you know, but then again, you know, a, a little inconsistency, you know, never hurts. <laughs> there was another minor appearance that made me smile here. Uh, Q's assistant Smithers uh, was played by Jeremy Bullock, who uh, I think is best known for being Boba Fett in uh, the Star Wars films the the uh, the classic uh, Star Wars films, mm-hmm. uh, but you know he also did um, lots of uh, of British television and other film work and what have you. But it was uh, it was fun to see him pop up there in that minor role. I had completely forgotten that he was in it. Hmm. And Q has an assistant. I'm just checking. I was curious about uh, Q has an assistant in the next movie as well. He and is he's back he's in the, He is in the next one as well. That's, That's correct. That's pretty cool because that makes him one of the rare returning characters in a Bond series. Yes. Yeah. That's and, that's very rare. There are not many of them. Uh, yes, yeah, Smithers. Smithers. I, I did actually a, uh, there's a Sporkle quiz that I did today. It's like one of those online quizzes and specifically asked who has recurring roles other than James Bond, who's appeared in more than one James Bond movie. And uh, mm-hmm. Smithers is not on there, so I, I like that. Oh, yeah. Have, virtually everyone else that's appeared like as a character, every other character that's appeared more than once appears is on that list mm-hmm. but i think he was the actor was not actually credited in this film but he was in the next one i see ah, okay yeah that might that might be but the, he the does the appear ball. and i think they mention his name in both films they do certainly mention his name in octopus because i just saw that uh, yesterday so i remember them saying that i think they very briefly mention his uh his name in for your eyes only as well but it's very brief <laughs> yeah but uh yes it was certainly um amusing to uh, to see him pop up in that uh, in that setting so uh, action set pieces there were a lot of them in this mm-hmm uh, I had the feeling this was the film where in their going back to some of the classic elements that they wanted to have everything in there yeah, <laughs> yeah so we have yeah we have both skiing and underwater car chases. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, cliff face climbing, climbing things as well. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. So yeah, certainly. I mean, having now seen Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I mean that that you know that that moment at the end when they you know when they fi- finally reveal where where the monastery is was you know was obviously you know you know a, a, a another big shout out to 
to that film. You know, even if his uh, his his method of getting there might have been uh, a, l- a little different. But uh, and um, you know, I'm not, I mean that that whole sequence actually, I I, I did rather like. Cause even though I've you know, it's not, it's not something I've never had the uh, the courage to attempt myself. I really don't like the idea of hanging off a cliff yeah. where if I go, I'm you know, I'm not going to. I might not survive. But yeah, uh, they did have a per- they did have a pretty impressive rock face sequence there. Mm-hmm. They did. It, 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 although my problem with a lot of the action in the movies, I honestly find that a lot of the action is a bit uh, slow at times. I find the scenes, even when they're even when they're good scenes, they go on too long. Um, there was an attempt to put a lot of action here, but I found almost every action sequence went on like a couple of minutes longer than it needed to. Oh yeah, I thought even the ski one was about right. The ski one, well, but the ski one sort well, of segues into the it segues into so many things. You have the ski jump in the middle. Uh, then yeah. you have the bobsled the part, and then yeah. you had a lot of cross countrying at the first part of it, or a bit of downhill. It goes on for quite a bit. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I kept I kept wondering if we were going to see a you know a, a credit for the the Winter Olympics being a, you know, a sponsor <laughs> of the movie because it was like you know no, they have, they have, they have to get in you know like every major Olympic sport. <laughs> yeah, so it, <laughs> so that went, that went on for a while. The original car chase is is entertaining with the instead of the Lotus, which gets blown up right away. Yeah. It's uh, what was it, a, uh, a Citroën or something? Or? Yes, yeah, it was yeah, a Citroën 2C, I think. It's a little car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. GCD, yeah, the, the De Chevaux. The... Yeah, that... That's right. It was like the equi- the uh, French equivalent to a Volkswagen Bug, you know, it was yes. a Volkswagen Beetle. It was this little car. And, uh, yeah, they sort of symbolically destroyed the the Bond car right at the, at the beginning, uh, which, you know, they were trying to do something where it would be not as gadget heavy and going back to some of you know the things with bond having to uh to get by on his wits and that sort of thing yeah but yeah it was amusing to see uh the theft protection device on the, <laughs> the lotus blows up a car yeah. <laughs> which apparently when they test screened it in new york which at the time had a very big car theft problem there uh-huh. was enormous applause when the car blows up <laughs> that is funny yeah oh, that would certainly that would certainly cut down on car theft however <laughs> most people wouldn't want to be driving around <laughs> on that much uh, C4 or whatever. Yes. <laughs> Just waiting for it to go off. Exactly. It's but yeah, tough. you had the the uh, the big car chase that sort of really used the terrain and went for a little bit of comedy with things, you know, bouncing around and going back and forth at times. But um, you know, I think I think it was okay. Yeah. I actually quite did like the climbing sequence, which sort I'm... of had a lot of tension in it and a lot of sort of uh, Bond, you know, dangling out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I-, I guess for uh, it's a good sequence, no question. But for me, sometimes I look at these films as how much. I enjoy them on rewatch and sometimes that scene just it, it's not that it's not as exciting as I think it should be it's also kind of silly where like the guy the guy spots him and tries to knock him off but doesn't bother calling any of his buddies and so like, oh oh by the way I think we're under attack no 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 he just goes down and tries to knock Bond off on his own yeah, yeah. little things like that just stand yeah, out more yeah. and then there's also these moments where Bond keeps getting like one after the other his, his all the remaining patons are knocked out until he's left with just the one which would not support him at that point right and yeah. it's like yeah it, it certainly was fun the first time and it but i just think it's a bit slow okay fair enough yep 
I, I mean, I, I've I've always rather enjoyed it, and also, I mean, as I say, since I I, I do not climb, but I'd watched a, a, a bunch of climbing movies and uh, you know documentaries over the years, and I, I was rather impressed that they you know, they they were actually being relatively realistic, except for that very very valid point that the one Piton would not have would not have well, held. Well, also, the bot managing of you know, I mean, using the laces to uh, you know. Every uh, time the guy knocks out a baton, Bond falls further back yes. because that has to be because the rope between Bond and, and the batons has gotten longer. And right. yet the last time he's able to make it up, which is not realistic. So yeah, I just yeah. found that all, I don't know. But it's certainly visually good and it's it's fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the climbing sequence was actually done by the stuntman who did the ski parachute jump from The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And we also had, uh, of course, Willie Bogner back doing his uh, mm-hmm. stunt work and filming work on the ski sequences. Yeah. Uh, and he was, by this time... He was directing some of those sequences and he was helping to design and write some of the sequences too. Because mm. this was, I think, his third or fourth uh, Bond film he was working on. Yeah, probably. Like that. And we should also mention that the ski chase sequence includes a reappearance from the Italian director that showed up in the last two movies to do his double take with his right. gear <laughs> as, yes. as Bond and then one of the motorcycles goes crashing over the patio in which he's having a drink. This is his last appearance, but three movies in a row set in Italy in various places, so they were certainly able to eat him. That was Victor Turyansky, a uncredited man with wine glass. <laughs> yeah, he al- always doing the double take with the drink. I think it was four Bond films in a row he three, did. Three, three. He was on, okay. He's on the beach yeah. in Sardinia. He's in St. Mark's Square in Moonraker. And then right. he's in Cortina uh, uh, in Free Eyes Only. That's yeah. right. Okay. I'm not even sure Bond's been back to it. Well, you, I guess he has been back in uh, Casino Royale, but he didn't go back to Italy for quite a while after that, I think. Yes. Right. Yeah, and then I mean, in terms of uh, you know, and I, I mean, uh, again, this may be you know, this, I think this is more a sequence that I that I found uh, find gets slower as as I rewatch it, but uh, then the, the 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 underwater sequence going to final when they finally track down the boat and. Uh, Go over the a, you know, go after the attack, and yeah. Uh, well, that, that's and... that's pure torture in terms of slowness. Uh, in fact, this is the first time I rewatched that scene in a while because every other time I've watched this movie, I've kind of fast forwarded through that sequence. Right. It's, it's just <laughs> extremely slow. I yeah. thought, it, and, I thought and, it was actually a little bit more eventful than some of the other underwater sequences they've done. It's, um, kind, of, it's kind of after he destroys the guy in the in the one the the one man suit. Then mm-hmm. they have the uh, the additional battle with the sub- the other submersible, and I think the right. other that, ba- exactly that battle was true. the one that was just extraneous and unnecessary. Yeah, mm-hmm. the earlier parts with them sort of creeping in through the sub and then having to deal with this other guy. Yeah, that was that okay. Was, I thought were reason were yeah. pretty good. You're right. The sort of extended bit after that, where the other guy is coming after them with a crazy sub with the claws. Yeah, that was that was a little bit excessive. Yeah, it's, yeah. at this point and, it's just and, okay surface. Yeah, and and there was also one edit which i think they really had to make was why does bond make you know be so specific about you know okay let's conserve our air you know let's not talk much and then he's like talking his way through the entire extraction (laughs) yeah that's true uh well that that was kind of more intense but a better question is if they're being attacked by a sub while they're while they're getting the attack why doesn't he just destroy the attack now 
Just smash it right. into pieces. That would probably be a good idea. Uh, of course, yeah. it would ruin the rest of the movie, but <laughs> I, I guess he's not going to do it. Yeah. But you sort of, yeah. you sort of cries out for a just smash the thing now or do something to destroy it. He was still mm. hoping to retrieve it at that. Why? Point, There's I no, guess. It has yeah. no point. There's no, no benefit. It, yeah, it's their technology. You know, yeah. they can just make another one. <laughs> they don't need. To, they don't need to save it. It's not like an Enigma device or something or a lector. Yeah. yeah. Lector decoder. Yeah. This was sort of a repeating theme of the um the the secret communications gadget uh, that uh, you know you that uh, they're trying to either avoid it falling into the wrong hands or get a hold of it themselves. Yeah. Oh, it's thoroughly Cold War, but it's a good it's a good MacGuffin as far as yes, MacGuffins absolutely. Go, as far as MacGuffins go in the Bond films, it's it's one of the better ones. Sure. I think it's pretty good. Uh, well, it also the element of the um the device targeting the uh, tar- uh, doing the targeting for all of the ships that was uh, the spy who loved me, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, they could track all the ships with that device. Yeah. yeah. So there were yeah. some connections there, but it, it it worked. It was okay. Yeah, I felt this was more like this was more like an Enigma device, and that if it fell into the other hand, in the hands of your opponents, it would severely undermine your defensive capabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that was sort of what we were dealing with with the attack. Although I think when I first saw the movie, I probably didn't know what the Enigma device was. Right. <laughs> I think story-wise, this film was a little bit sort of all over the place, a little bit messy, but all in all, I think okay. Yeah, I think it is good. It's like his mission is to stop them from getting the device, and uh, it, he almost fails completely, <laughs> and he gets kind of lucky at the end. At the end, when um, yeah. you're at the end when he meets Q, where unnecess- Q unnecessarily goes to the church on Greece to uh, masquerade as a priest to give Bond information, he says, "Your signal sent Whitehall into a frenzy. Did you know there are 300 Saint Cyrils? No, his signal sent Whitehall into a frenzy because he lost the attack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like that's what sent Whitehall into." a frenzy it's like you've completely screwed up that's right but uh yeah uh, i think that there's some uh, the the movie does shoot grease nicely or at least the parts at uh, corfu i think is where it was and it does a good job on that um what else i like the uh the keel hauling sequence is also very good taken mm-hmm. that's taken directly from live and let die the novel and it's right. something that they had wanted to film even for live and let die i think they would have liked to film it but all they could do in that one was they simply put Bond and Solitaire above the sharks. And, and sort of that was their attempt to do the end of the book. Right, because right. That's, how, that's how the book Live and the Die ends. Um, I believe uh, Mr. Big keeps trying to kill all them over a reef until he hits a mine or something and then blows himself up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they did something more like more like that here. And it did work well. Yeah, no, it's a very good sequence. Yes, yeah, and actually a believable ending to it as well. That, that's right. Uh, it's a it's a death trap, but it's a trap that's meant to work for once. And uh, Bond was very lucky and resourceful, and they had that tank, which helped significantly. And they yeah. they set that up reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, although I mean, I, I mean, when it uh, when it came up this time, I mean, I, I still have this issue of you know, okay, but why does she leave the tank in the first place? <laughs> Just in case they might need it later. Yeah. <laughs> One never knows. Mm-hmm. She, she wanted to. to do some stuff swimming around with the maneuverability of not having a tank. Well, no, uh, I think it also makes sense if there's air in the tank and it's the 
site that they're using in the event that there's a, a malfunction with one tank. It, okay. it was the yeah. site. It was the site they were re researching. So no, that's true. Well, that's that's true. right. It was no, their it right. Um, yeah, the archaeological site that they were that right. they were inspecting, and it was the cover for right. the search for the yeah the spy ship. But nobody knew where it was, even though it was very close to a underwater temple, and the Russians knew that it was out there because the minute it blew up, Russians knew it blew up, yeah. and yet nobody knows where it is. That was a little. Mm. Bit, that was another thing that doesn't really make sense if you actually yeah. if you actually look into it because yeah. clearly everybody knew the ship was a spy ship, so everybody mm -hmm. knew where it was when it went down. The ship yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that's actually an element that Tommy. I mean, they do sort of pay you know lip service to in the script because you you know you're sort of wondering. It's like, well, wait a minute, if you know Christodos is already you know on the surface above above it, you know, why didn't he just grab it? And then you know, but of course it's you know no, they you know he it's almost like he you know. You know, if he was being really cunning, you know, they could have thrown in something about him, you know, sort of deliberately leaving it for, for Bond to go and retrieve since Bond would know how to uh, how to disable the uh, the security. Plus, it wasn't it wasn't just a spy ship. It was the disguised spy ship. So yeah. it wasn't meant to be it wasn't meant to be an invisible ship. It would have actually right. had shipping plans. And it, it, yeah, it, was, a, it, it was a fishing vessel. Yeah. People would have known where it was. Right. <laughs> it was a secret installation of the fishing vessel. Right. But there was no reason to hide the location of the fishing vessel. That's that's yeah. true. Yeah. And, uh, except that the Russians knew it was a secret location on a fishing vessel so they were already aware of its existence because as soon as it blew up they were like hey let's go get it <laughs> maybe it's just one high level there's obviously high level spies in both uh in both spy organizations that the show net that the movies never tried to deal with yes <laughs> that's one that's one thing they never went after they never went after the british spies in the kgb and the kgb never went after their uh, the you know their own spies the british never went after the kgb spies at mi6 yeah you you had the sort of game being played that was sort of fun in this era yes okay so let's give uh some final thoughts on this uh gary what did you think of this one well i mean i've always liked a lot of aspects about the plot it, it does follow a nice back to basics mission for bond so i do like those elements and and most of the cast is pretty good so that's enjoyable like I said, the one thing, the things that I didn't like about this movie are I find a lot of it is slow going. I mean, I find that some of the action sequences were not as exciting as they could have been. And I wish they'd been a little more fast paced. This was John Glenn's first uh, Bond full direction. So maybe he was still getting the hang of that or, or knowing how long the scene should be paced. I think he did get better in many ways as time went on. Uh, but what I, I have to say, the one thing I really didn't like about this movie was the score by Bill Conti, who had won an Oscar for Rocky. But his music here, I think, it really it kill, kills the mood whenever it's on. If it's romantic, I mean, the song, the title song by Sheena Easton, sung by Sheena Easton, but I think it was written by Bill Conti. Um, it's, it's a good song. It's a very memorable song, and I have no, no problem with the song itself. But it turns out to have very little musical cues for the film. And whenever it's used, it feels like a, a very cheesy 80s romance movie. It, I think it really kills the mood. It, it comes on, and I feel like I'm watching some, almost like a European... Yeah, it's just not European romance movie or, or softcore kind of movie for the time. It really it really ruins it, and I find uh, Conti's action music is, e is even worse 
worse to some extent. It's like like in the car chase, if you think it's like a bad 80s action show, and that's how it sort of sounds. Mm-hmm. It really yeah, did but, not. It really lacks John Barry's class. Yes. I, find, yes. And, and, I actually, I quite like the, the, uh, the title sequence is not bad, but I quite like the song itself. But yeah, it doesn't work very well as, uh, as a theme within the film. And when the music goes towards the pop side of the side of things and the sort of da- dance music of the time, mm-hmm. that side of things, yeah, it doesn't work well. Yeah. From time to time, it goes to more classical or more sort of Greek folk music type themes. And then I think it works reasonably well. But yeah, when it goes to the theme music or to the more pop music kinds of sounds, it doesn't work very well and it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how those early 80s synthesizers just completely date something now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but I agree. I mean, you know, there were times when, you know, yeah, the, the combination of the music and, you know, the way the action sequences were done where, you know, you, you almost feel like you're in you know, one of the, you know, a, a Knight Rider or Air, Airwolf sort yes. of sequence. <laughs> yes, that's how it felt. <laughs> At this point in the series, all of, I think all of the soundtracks that we've heard that were not John Barry soundtracks have been sort of problematic in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this, I mean, one yeah, yeah. Most, uh, this one may be the most problematic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's really a case of, you know, you kind of, you know, I mean, I I guess I, I understand Cubby Broccoli was, you know, wanting to uh, try and stay sort of current, but but, uh, you know, I mean, those, you know, the the, the, the classic Bond themes and, uh, you know, what John Barry did, I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's become so iconic that, uh, you know, you kind of wonder why they, you know, why they didn't just recognize that, you know, no, that, you know, that music is as much a part of the experience as any, any, any of the other recurring elements and, uh you know, just just keep going back to what works. Yeah. Uh, Gary, aside from music, you want to finish up your final thought? Uh, sure, I'll finish my final thought with a mention of uh, I'll sort of date this this comment we're doing this this uh, we're recording the podcast on the very day that Margaret Thatcher passed away, and uh, I think we should mention the oh. the appearance, the special guest appearance <laughs> by <laughs> Margaret. Yeah, I think we must. <laughs> I think it's so appropriate that it's it's today that we happen to be recording this. But uh, we should mention the brief appearance of Prime Minister Thatcher and her husband, Dennis, as Mm -hmm. played by the celebrity impersonators of the time. And yeah. uh, it's very, it's often criticized as a very silly and unnecessary sequence. It's a little bizarre. <laughs> it is. It is bizarre. But I think this movie, this movie made an effort to sort of make itself very serious. And it pretty much shoved all the comedy into that opening bit with the stainless steel delicatessen that didn't work. And the very end, if you think about it, there really wasn't any, there weren't very many comedic moments at all during the film. If anyone provides them, it was, it was BB doll and she's not that funny. So really, it, it kept the silly comedy out for the most part, but it brought it back in the very last sequence. And I don't know. It, it tried to it tried to go one up on the. They didn't do a they didn't do a Bond attempting reentry or they didn't make it a sexual double entendre this time. But uh, I think it's kind of funny, and I appreciate it now. It's still silly, and and but I, I still like it. Yes, it involved the phone conversation with the para that for some be- <laughs> for some reason people <laughs> thought was Bond. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yes. That was more yeah. for the part yeah. where yeah. Dennis yeah. Dennis reaches for an extra Brussels sprout and she slaps his hand sort of to stop him from taking it. Yeah. Which was sort yeah. of a way to sort of say she's a control freak and it sort of had her pegged quite well, actually. Yeah, and for the for those of us who might might have been on the other side of the political spectrum from her, it, it, it was fun seeing that Margaret Thatcher could be fooled by a trained parent. So. <laughs> and I would say well, I, was too, I was too yeah. young a time to really appreciate whether she was likable or not, so yeah. I kind of thought it was funny as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, some good points there. I'm just going to say that uh, this is not one of my top favorites of the Bond films, but it's definitely a fun one and a sort of uh, solid entry somewhere in the in the middle there it's it's good it's a it's definitely um a pretty good one uh and for me having julian glover in there who i've always liked was sort of a highlight but yeah definitely uh one that i enjoy and i'll enjoy coming back to again yeah i mean i would uh, I'd, I'd agree with uh, with pretty pretty much all of that i mean that uh, certainly after you know after the accesses of Moonraker. I remember um, when I when I saw this, I did find it kind kind of refreshing going back to the. Uh the simpler style and uh um you know and now i mean i think having having seen some of the other films that it was playing off of you know no i mean i, I would you know i would not rank this you know quite you know quite quite as quite as highly but uh, but it's still enjoyable enough and uh you know and they're still still i think pulling off that mix of the you know yes a more serious bond but still having you know some, some of those comedic elements in there you know it wasn't uh you know quite as uh you know quip heavy as uh you know as moonraker was at times so uh you know yeah and an, an interesting you know sh shift in direction and uh you know it uh yeah i mean it's still still a good serviceable bond film even if not uh not not one of the top rank okay very good james bond will return in octopussy so this is brian take care folks this is gary see you next time and this is Edmund. We'll see you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Hooked on Bond. Find out more at hookedonbond.com or on Facebook. Hooked on Bond is broadcast on the Voice of Geeks Network at vognetwork.com.